In 1920, the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts celebrated the 300th anniversary of the arrival of Mayflower with unprecedented pomp and circumstance. An ambitious new landscaping project along the Plymouth waterfront would house pageants and plays, original music, newly commissioned monuments, and plenty of speeches about the enduring legacy of the Pilgrim Fathers. Tens of thousands of people were entertained over the course of a year. It took nearly a decade in the making, but Plymouth had reinvented itself from a coastal maritime industrial community into America's hometown. On this episode of Voices from the Past, we'll explore the tercentenary commemorations and discover how Plymouth went pilgrim. So Anne, my first question for you is why in 1920 it was so suddenly important for Plymouth to bring the pilgrim story to the national stage with this huge commemoration? That's a, that is a great question because, I, first of all, the impetus for this commemoration didn't necessarily come from Plymouth itself. Um, a lot of the key movers and shakers were actually um, at the state level. Um, some people in Plymouth were obviously very concerned about presenting the Pilgrim story, um, but it was really from the state commission that you had the large projects that ended up taking place, so the pageant and the um, re-landscaping of the waterfront. And I think the Pilgrim story, you know, ever since the mid-19th century had been gaining um, importance as an American origin story. Um, but in 1920, the commemorators were responding to some very specific things happening nationally. So if you think of the post-World War I period, um, this is the time of the Red Scare when Americans are very concerned about socialism coming in, about um, new immigrant populations and their effect on um, American politics and American culture. Um, and so they really are trying to um, capitalize in some ways on the Pilgrim story as really um, rooting American identity in Anglo culture. Can you talk a little bit more about that state commission? Who mm -hmm. was involved with it and when did it first begin its work? So the state commission had um, had a, a very long history. Um, their initial commission was proposed in 1913, um, and then there was one, uh, the first commission actually was appointed in, um, in 1916, I believe, and then um, later in 1917, a second commission came on board. And so there were several different commissions, committees, appointed by the governor of Massachusetts in order to um, first develop a plan for the, for the tercentenary commemoration, and then um, to enact that plan. Um, and so the chair of the commission that actually saw the commemoration to completion um, was Louis Liggett, who was a, um, a, a leading Boston figure. Um, one of the probably, I think, the most important people on the committee was actually Arthur Lord, who was from Plymouth. Um, and so he is uh, sort of became this bridge between the town of Plymouth and the city of Boston and the state. Um, and so he served on the commission. He did um, the majority of the letter writing. And we have um, his letters still at Pilgrim Hall Museum where um, you can just see all the effort he's putting into coordinating the commemorative events um, and the memorials that are being erected. Um, but he was a lawyer. He was on the um, uh, Massachusetts um, Bar Association. He was involved with the American Bar Association. So he was a, a prominent figure. Um, on the state level, on the national level, and then um, in Plymouth itself, he 
he um, was in many different positions. He was on the planning board for a time. So he was he was a key figure to sort of coordinate all the activities. And he was, was he not also heavily involved with the Pilgrim Society, as Pilgrim Hall Museum was then called? Right, yes. So he was the, um, the president of the Pilgrim Society for, um, in the early 20th century. How was the Pilgrim Society involved in this early planning stage, or was it involved? Well, because of Arthur Lord, um, they, you know, well, Arthur Lord sort of urged the Pilgrim Society to actually take action as early as 1912. Um, we know that he, he spoke to the trustees of the Pilgrim Society and said, you know, we're, we're coming up to the, the 300th anniversary and we really need to start planning and we really need to um, be involved in, in what's going to happen because Lord had um, really paid close attention to what happened in Jamestown for its 300th in 1907. And he knew that um, uh, people would be interested in Plymouth for its 300th. And so um, he, he really wanted to make sure that, that Pilgrim Society was ahead of, of this rush of interest in, in the, um, the tercentenary and really got ahead of the game and had a firm proposal, um, a firm idea of what they wanted to do here in Plymouth um, so that then they then could take advantage of all the increased interest. What was that original plan? What did it look like? What were some of the pieces? Um, well, one, the biggest piece, and it's pretty consistently, um, it, it appears consistently in all of the proposals for the tercentenary, um, was to clean up the waterfront. Um, and Plymouth's waterfront looked very different in the 19th and 20th century than it does today. Um, it actually was, um, it was an active shipping um, community. Uh, there were m multiple wharves um, into the harbor. There were um, counting houses and storage houses um, along the wharves and along the bottom of Coles Hill. Um, and that had played an important role in developing Plymouth as a port and as a town. Um, but by you know the, the early 20th century, um, certain people thought that it looked pretty disreputable, that it looked, you know, the buildings were unsightly, the wharves they thought were in bad condition, um, shipping was on the decline. Um, and so they, they said, you know what, we need to clean up this waterfront and we, um, we want to make the Plymouth waterfront return to the way it looked when the pilgrims landed um, and actually, you know, create more of a, a, a better setting for Plymouth Rock itself. Um, and repeatedly they use the word shrine, make, um, you know, make creating an, a suitable shrine to the pilgrim memory on the Plymouth waterfront. So actually um, really turning attention to, to that landing point itself. Wasn't there already a shrine around the rock at this point? Because the rock had been moved several times, mm -hmm. eventually brought back to its current location, and the two halves reunited in the 1880s, and that Italianate-style canopy had been built, correct? Right. So um, the, we, the Billings canopy was still surrounded by the wharves mm -hmm. um, and by these other um, earlier buildings. Um, so the rock, if you came to Plymouth, you could walk down the waterfront and you could um, see the Billings Canopy, see the rock, you could actually um, access the rock more readily. So you could, we have, there are many photographs that exist of people sitting on the rock, standing on the rock. There's actually a photograph of goats standing on the rock. Um, so it was a very, it was a very different experience where you, um, you weren't in a memorial park, you weren't um, separated from the activity on the waterfront. You sort of had to get through that activity in order to encounter the rock, and you could have a more personal, tactile encounter with the rock. But people were concerned about that because they thought, 
it detracted from um, the sense of reverence that people might have, that it was um, too easily accessible maybe. Um, and that, you know, they, they didn't necessarily at that point really appreciate the style of the canopy that was over the rock. They thought it was too, um, too gothic or too almost um, too Catholic in some ways that it, it looked, uh, it was very much in that mode. And so the portico that, that was erected for the tercentenary that's now um, on Plymouth Waterfront is a much more neoclassical mm -hmm. um, style. It was designed by McKinmead and White, who are leading New York um, architects of the day. And so the architectural visions had changed, memorial visions had changed, and it was really that desire to, to create more of a more of a shrine, more of a separation and a, and a reverence for the rock itself. And some people even said, well, um, you know, people who visit the rock in its old setting, they laugh because you would need a gangplank to get from the Mayflower to the rock because it's so set so far back um, from where the shore is today. And so that was another part of the vision was actually to, to move the rock back to its original um, or closer to the original shore so that it could um, people who visited could more readily sort of imagine the scene of the landing. I think the interesting piece for me about the rock is with that new neoclassical canopy that's around the rock, that it is very much a sense of, as you say, elevating or enshrining the rock and removing it from people, that this is an object to be, to be worshipped. Um, and yet the religious world that the pilgrims came from was very much that shrines and objects were not imbued with any kind of religious power or significance that it was about the word and mm -hmm. the words um, in scripture that were more important. So I've always found that juxtaposition mm -hmm. really interesting that in the early 20th century, people wanted to worship the story and the people and the objects that they came with, mm -hmm. um, whether that's furniture or even their own, people's own positions as a Mayflower descendant or something like the rock. Because today in 2016 on the waterfront, we still pe see people visiting the rock, but I'm sure you see here at Plymouth Antiquarian Society, we see at Plymouth Plantation, visitors want that personal experience again, mm -hmm. that they want to feel connected to the story. So a different kind of understanding that it's not worship from afar, but it's sort of worship through understanding right. in a very different way. And it's interesting because even um, at the time of the tercentenary, you know, people did record uh, reactions to the rock that weren't in line with what the commemorators anticipated. So I think there was a disconnect between this grand commemorative vision that people like Arthur Lord had, um, or that, you know, this memorial vision of McKinmead and White and the colonial dames who erected the new portico compared to the everyday person who's coming to look at the rock. So, you know, there are comments about how it, it's just sort of this poor dead thing. And, you know, you go up and you look over the canopy and there it is and you can't reach it. And it's, it's you know, it's already been um, made smaller by souvenir seekers and by just the time and this moves, many moves that it had. Um, but it looks even smaller because it's below you. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there is that disconnect, you know, that people, what you, what you think people will um, view as enshrining actually just ends up sort of alienating them in some ways. And another one of the major changes that came to the waterfront as part of this commemorative exercise, um, you talk about the new canopy over the rock, but they also completely re-landscaped it. Mm -hmm. A lot of what people visit today when they come to the Plymouth waterfront is 
is Phil, is Landfill. Mm -hmm. um, how did that project come about? Whose idea was that? So that was all part of the same project to clear up the waterfront, and it was mm -hmm. overseen by the state commission, um, the state's tercentenary commission. It was funded um, in part by the state, but mostly also by the, um, the federal appropriation that was made for the tercentenary. Um, and so it was, it was all part of that redesign where um, they, they literally bulldozed um, the, the structures that had been on the waterfront. They actually had to dynamite some of the wharves. You know, they had thought that these wharves were all rotten and would just pull away really easily, and then it ended up taking quite a bit of um, effort to get them out. Um, but again, that's all just sort of this idea of we're going to reset the rock and we're going to re-landscape it. And they were very, um, they wanted to be very uh, particular about what kind of trees they planted. So they actually, uh, I don't know if they were very successful in that, but they had this vision of planting native trees, um, you know, sort of reimagining the landscape as, um, again, as the pilgrims first would have seen it if it had been um, unspoiled, so to speak, which, uh, you know, again, uh, sort of, ignores the fact that Patuxent had been um, had been lived in for for centuries by by other people so um, not really paying any attention to that side of the story but just sort of thinking about pilgrims arriving and having the rock here on the waterfront in a completely um, wooded un again in their mind unspoiled backdrop one of the things I'm, I'm really curious about and, and love on, that's part of the Plymouth Waterfront now are all of the memorials and statuary mm -hmm. that are part of really Water Street all the way down to Brewster Gardens. And I know that the large statue of Massasoit, for example, was one of these pieces that, were com that was commissioned for uh, the 1920 celebrations, as is the smaller um, statue of William Bradford. Um, can you talk a little bit about those statues and mm -hmm. the role that they play in the waterfront narrative? Right. So it's um, it's pretty interesting because a lot happened between, you know, these initial proposals for the tercentenary and then the actual date in 1920. And of course, the big thing that happened was World War One. Um, so plans begin before World War One and then the United States enters the war in 1917 and things stall. So the, the Tercentenary Commission and people like Arthur Lord are still trying to, um, you know, to, to, to move along and, and make plans. And the governor of Massachusetts says, I'm not giving any money to this project because it's wartime. Um, and so a lot of the, the grand visions that they had couldn't be completed after the war because of that delay. Um, and the same is true for a lot of the memorials. So organizations like the Colonial Dames of America and the Daughters of the American Revolution had had visions for donating memorials to Plymouth and that was sort of their way for these organizations of um, these genealogical organizations or patriotic historical associations to to make their mark on Plymouth in the tercentenary and um, you know show that oh yeah we're, we're contributing to this celebration um, in the same way had that had happened in Jamestown where again the colonial dames the DAR had given um, objects, memorials, contributed to different physical projects, uh, just so long as they could, you know, get their name on the plaque, so to speak. Um, and so you have all these different groups who want to erect some kind of a memorial, but you don't have any one organization um, providing oversight. So um, Arthur Lord had, you know, he had wanted the Pilgrim Society to be the organization that would provide that oversight and sort of come up with a comprehensive plan for the waterfront, um, and that didn't happen. The state commission in its earlier proposals had a much a broader view of the whole waterfront and what they were going to do to change it. 
Um, and because of the war and because of the delay, they weren't able to sort of control things maybe as much as they could have um, at another time. And so the different organizations go ahead, they propose monuments, um, they raise the money for them themselves, and then they have they erect them themselves. Um, and so it does end up feeling very scattered because there's no one um, architect who's actually um, designing all of them or coordinating all of them. And so the architect was McKim Mead and White who designed the portico over the rock actually really wanted to be that figure who was coordinating these different ac efforts. Um, and he, he did submit certain proposals, um, but they're just because of time and um, politics and money um, that never really happened. Um, so it is a landscape littered with memorials, but often they're, they're not connected. Um, so, and, and again, they're delayed. Um, the waterfront itself was cleared um, starting really in December of 1920. So after the um, official anniversary of the Pilgrim landing. Um, and then it's, it's completely cleared for the summer of 1921 when the state puts on the Pilgrim Spirit pageant um, held on the, the cleared waterfront. Um, and then it's not until November of 1921 that the portico over the rock is dedicated. It's not actually until 1925 that the memorial fountain to the woman of the Mayflower, um, which was um, donated by the Daughters of the American Revolution, was dedicated. So you had, you know, that project was proposed before World War I, um, went through multiple uh, iterations, multiple designs, multiple locations were proposed for it. Um, and so with all those delays, it wasn't actually dedicated till 1925, even though it's, you know, it is a tercentenary monument because that was the anniversary for which it was created. Um, you mentioned there was a, they did a pageant in 1921. Yes. Um, what did it consist of? Mm -hmm. So that was the, the second big initiative by the state um, was to put on this grand historical pageant. Um, and these pageants like this were very popular in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, as it was commemorating historic events, that was something that Americans liked to do. And actually pageants happened, you know, obviously pageantry has a long history, but um, in Europe as well, there pageants were happening all over the place. Um, and so it was sort of a natural impulse to say, well, how are we going to commemorate the landing of the pilgrims as this, you know, foundational event to the United States? Um, let's have a pageant. And it was written by Harvard University professor George Baker, um, who had written several other pageants, and he directed um, the pageant here in Plymouth. He actually recruited all the actors from local communities, so they weren't professional actors, they were just volunteers from Plymouth, from Kingston, from Marshfield, from Duxbury. Some of them have very familiar pilgrim names, so they were descendants of, um, you know, the, the Bradfords and the Brewsters. Um, but others actually, if you look at the program, had have Italian names. So um, Professor Baker was very clear that he was recruiting, uh, he, was, he wanted to recruit actors, not just from the established Plymouth families, but also from newcomers. And again, to um, use the Pilgrim story as a way to Americanize um, new arrivals to the United States and, and sort of say that we are you know, we are bringing you into this story. So if you want to understand what America is, you have to understand the pilgrims and you, you can even reenact the pilgrim history. Um, but the funny thing about the script is that it starts way before the pilgrims. So it actually starts with the early explorers to Plymouth um, and New England, um, including somewhat controversially starting with the Vikings. Um, so you have 
um, the Norsemen there, and then you have the French explorers, and you have John Smith um, coming ashore. Um, it, you you have these early scenes with um, Thomas Hunt and the capture of um, the young men from Patuxet, um, and then it switches to to Europe, and it covers the the story of of the separatists in England, and it covers the um, their lives in in Holland, and then um, it it goes on to the journey to the New World, and it covers some of the early years of um, the the Pilgrim settlement here as well, um, and it balances um, sort of a lot of pomp and what must have been very colorful spectacle um, with a lot of very long dry dialogue that probably was pretty incomprehensible to most people. So you have scenes where um, the pilgrims are discussing theology and discussing reasons to go to, um, you know, what is now America and um, all these questions. And then you have a royal procession of James I, where it really doesn't have anything to do with the pilgrim story, but um, it, it brought out a lot of great um, colorful costumes and there was a band that played and um, and there, there were actually horses that were involved as part of the scenes. You had riders in costume on these horses. And um, so it was, a, it probably was, was incredible to see. And the stage was actually lit um, with electric lights, which was, um, you know, that was one of the main things that was advertised about the pageant was that it was, it was cutting edge technology here to have the stage lit um, in such a way. Um, so you, you, you cover all these different episodes and it, it, to get up to, um, an understanding of the pilgrim story and then at the end of the pageant in the grand finale um, a woman representing um, each of the 50 states um, comes out carrying a flag of the state flag and um, there's a figure portraying George Washington and a character portraying um, Abraham Lincoln and it really um, connects the pilgrims to later American history and to again the creation of of the republic. Do we know much about the rehearsal process of this pageant or um, was there music involved or mm -hmm. how, the, the, tell me about the logistics of getting this pageant off the ground. Sounds like a lot yeah, of bodies. To it was. So there were over 1300 people in the cast itself. Um, the, huge. Um, the chorus, there was a chorus, again, a volunteer chorus um, had, I think, you know, over 200 people in the chorus alone. Um, again, they had a band from Boston that was, that was, that came down to, to perform. Um, they had multiple composers who composed the music um, and lyricists. Um, they had local women who actually spent hours and hours and hours to, um, creating the costumes for all of the characters. Um, Rolo Peters was um, the artistic designer for the pageant and he did all the costume designs himself. Um, some of them were very elaborate, so um, King James's costume was very colorful and very elaborate, and actually it was the pilgrim costumes that were pretty drab, um, again, sort of possibly to emphasize, um, you know, the, the differences between separatist culture and, and um, you know, the Church of England, but, um, but anyways, this whole range of costumes was, were created by these local women um, on, their, on their sewing machines, and all the props were made by hand, of course. Um, so it was. It, it took a lot of effort. Um, there were many, many rehearsals leading up to the pageant, and then it was performed 12 times in the summer of 1921. And it was performed outside? It was, right. So right on the, all the land that had been cleared on the waterfront, that became the pageant stage. Um, and they set the, 
the grandstands were set on Coles Hill, or sort of along Coles Hill, so that people would sit there and then look out um, on the stage and across out into into the harbor itself. How much did it cost to go to the pageant? Do we have oh, any records I, of that? Yes, I know. I do have that. It's on. I don't have it off the top of my head, though. But probably would seem like nothing to us today in maybe, comparison. Um, maybe a couple of dollars. Yes. No, it, it wasn't, um, you know, exorbitant. But, um, I mean, thousands of people saw it. Um, President Harding actually came to Plymouth um, to see the pageant, to... Um, to celebrate the tercentenary. It was on August 1st of 1921 was set aside as President's Day and um, he came and, and saw the pageant and, and um, I think on that day alone there were, they well they said that 100,000 people came to Plymouth itself on that day. Um, so it drew large crowds. So this scene, there are a lot of moving pieces in this in this commemorative exercise between reshaping the waterfront, developing this pageant, um, I'm curious, was this the first major commemorative exercise of the arrival of the Mayflower? I think it's safe to say that it was bigger than anything that had happened before. Um, in 1820, when the Pilgrim Society was founded, you know, that's 200 years after the arrival. Um, the Pilgrims are far enough back in history that they're, you know, they're starting to gain that sort of mythic status. Um, and there are, you know, sort of Dinners, lectures, that kind of thing happen pretty regularly, of course, um, celebrating Forefathers Day. Um, there are a lot of local plays and pageants that are written and that take place in the you know years before the tercentenary. So there had always been um, commemorations of the event, um, especially locally. But this was certainly the biggest, biggest commemoration that had happened in Plymouth. Um, what was the response from local people? I uh, actually, um, well, my, my favorite response is reported by my great-grandmother, who um, was a member of the pageant chorus, and she took her, her children to see the pageant. And so my great-aunt, who would have been, um, you know, maybe nine or so at the time, um, reported that she really liked um, the dances. She really liked the the colors and the spectacle of, of, of the scenes where there was dancing and there was music, but she didn't like those pilgrims because they just stood around and talked a lot. Um, so I think that gives a pretty, probably that's probably, I imagine, what most people thought. I mean, the, um, the reviews of the pageant were um, very positive. You know, people said it was just spectacular and that it was it combined, um, you know, drama and history and, and really this, this visually pleasing way. But I, I would think for the average person, they would come and they would see um, this great spectacle and they would like that part of it, but probably they wouldn't be able to hear very well all the details of the conversations that were happening. Um, and they, you know, the, the, if you read the script um, for the pageant, it gets very, very long and, and it can get very... Um, very detailed um, and maybe in surprising ways where they um, George Baker wasn't trying to to simplify the pilgrim story in a lot of ways he was you know he didn't have um, John and Priscilla for example he wasn't trying to to portray these popular myths of the pilgrims he was actually you know really doing research and and trying to recreate what what could have happened the conversations that could have happened but those don't always play out very well on on modern audiences do you think the 
commemorative exercises, these celebrations, did they change the way 20th century Americans thought about the pilgrims, or at least those who were in attendance at these, at the pageant and to come to see the waterfront? That's a very interesting question. Um, I know that Arthur Arthur Lord, to go back to to him and his memorial vision, he was he was pleased with the work that had happened. I think he thought that cleaning up the waterfront and the new memorials really did a lot to highlight um, the pilgrim story. But he was also disappointed because he didn't like all the vendors that were on the waterfront. So as soon as you know it was cleaned up and it became a site for tourism, you started having people down there with their food trucks, basically what we would call food trucks today. And um, you know, Plymouth has always had its souvenir shops. Um, and so I think that really disappointed him and probably the other commemorators where to them it was a, you know, there, there was this divide between commercialized heritage and, you know, true, true reverence for the past and for, for the forefathers. Um, but I think those two things have always existed where someone can have a meaningful experience or, or feel like they have a greater understanding about American history and at the same time want to, um, you know, buy a, buy a trinket um, to take home with them. So I think it's, it's really hard to judge whether, um, you know, whether the commemoration itself impacted the broader conception of the pilgrims and the public. I don't think it really did anything to change the narrative of, of the Pilgrim Fathers. I mean, it reinforced that narrative of um, the pilgrims and um, the importance of their settlement. But it did drastically change Plymouth itself. It changed how those people either living in Plymouth or coming to visit Plymouth experience the pilgrim legacy. And so, um, you know, I like to call it the pilgrimization of Plymouth, where before you had people coming and, you know, wanting to learn more about the pilgrim story and going to see the rock um, and, you know, buying their souvenirs downtown. Um, but now you have a whole waterfront that is no longer um, or minimally an active waterfront and is, is much more geared towards that tourist audience. Um, and so it really does change the way we, we think about, we, we, we interact with Plymouth itself. Um, and we're going now making plans for the 400th anniversary mm -hmm. in 2020. Um, I think we've come a long way in the last hundred years, not only with how we think about commemorative exercises and what commemorative exercises look like, um, we're not as much a pageant culture mm -hmm. anymore, or at least not in the same way as we mm -hmm. were at the turn of the 20th century. How do you think, just speculating, how do you think that the plans for 2020 are going to impact 21st century Americans and the way 21st century Americans think about the Plymouth's, Plymouth's story and the Pilgrim story? I think that there, it's... It, it is very interesting that you know our commemorative practices have changed so there really aren't that many hardly any plans to you know erect monuments physical monuments to the pilgrims or really at all um, and again the there are commemorative events planned but not the same sort of pageants as you were saying um, and in in a lot of ways it's because Americans have already sort of I think some Americans have moved away from the, the perception of the pilgrims as being essential to the American story. Um, so even in Plymouth itself, we have 
you know, often we'll say that, you know, Plymouth is, is a story about immigrants and the pilgrims were the first immigrants. And then you have the um, later immigrants who come to work at the Cordage Company, for example. And um, so there's there's less of a of a need maybe to um, to take that pilgrim story and make it um, essential to American identity. Um, certainly the pilgrim story is very important, um, but there's already been that shift in the public's perception to a large degree, I think. Um, so what the 400th will hopefully accomplish is um, to recognize to recognize the importance of the pilgrims um, and their national legacy, um, but also hopefully to recognize the context in which they came. And I know that the Plymouth 400 um, organization is working hard to really um, include the Wampanoag perspective, um, the native perspective, um, so that we, again, we understand the pilgrims better, I would hope, that um, we um, we don't. And I think, you know, I think George Baker and the other commemorators did try to do the same thing. They were trying to understand the pilgrims and the reasons they came and um, the reasons they made just certain decisions when they were here. But, um, you know, just to make sure that we're, we're continuing, continually um, developing our understanding of the pilgrims within their own context and not divorcing them um, from, from the past and, and sort of trying to fit them into our own expectations or our own mold. Want to learn more? Download all of our full-length Voices from the Past podcast episodes, as well as podcast sound bites from iTunes or stream it live on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. The Plymouth Plantation Podcast is produced by the Museum Experience Group and Plymouth Plantation Incorporated. Our theme music was composed by John Previdini. Thanks for listening.